0: Father God, our words are empty, but our souls are full, and we do the only thing that we know to do is to say thank you and to continue to ask for your help. Lord, we have seen the testimony of some young men. We have sung songs inspired by your spirit through people gifted in writing lyrics and melodies and putting together strings And percussion instruments. And voices. And we say, Lord, thank you that we bring it to you. But Lord, we believe that you also want to bring us your word. And we ask, Lord, for your help. Because you work through jars of clay. You work through fallen vessels to do the miracle and bring your word. So I ask, Lord, that you prepare my heart. That you prepare the heart of each and every one of us who are here. Lord, if we came out of courtesy... If we came out of habit, if we came out of friendship for others, Lord, let us leave in a deeper friendship with you, our Lord and Savior. We believe that you are blessed and you are honored when we ask much. So we ask, Lord, to take our hearts, pound in the knowledge of you, and bring us closer to you for your honor and for your glory and for your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 3 you don't need to turn there. We're going to go to Romans 8 will be our core text for today, but Romans 3 verse 11 and 12 Some strong verses. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That's an exciting way to start, Pastor. (laughs) Maybe we should have left two minutes ago. That's a bit of a conundrum. We just heard three teenage boys share that they are seeking after God, found God, made Him through the knowledge of the Spirit, the Savior and Lord of their life. And we just read by St. Paul himself That no one does that. No one. These three included. So how is that possible in our human lives, right? That's a challenge. You know, if you're also thinking about the big miracle that is, I was thinking about that uh, a little bit, and I saw, all right, we got three teenage boys. The likelihood of getting three teenage boys even up at this hour on a Sunday morning is like a near miracle for most families and homes, Getting three teenage boys that happen to be up or are dragged up to go to church somehow kicking and screaming is another miracle. To get them to get up and share their own words in front of a congregation is a whole nother miracle. And I am 100% confident that if Janet was not here this morning, if she'd have chose to stay home, if Tracy and Bobby, Big Bobby, Stayed home. And if Stan and Annie stayed home, these three teenage boys would have not only been here, they probably would have dragged us with them. Now, that's a miracle. That's the paradox. So, how do we explain it? In our lives, there's lots of paradoxes and conundrums. With God, there is none. So, He has an answer. Now I'll give us the answer what we're going to be talking about is God's overwhelming love. The love of God, and as we understand what that means, we might say that loosely, but when we understand what it means, we're going to take a few minutes today to think it through. The love of God is what breaks that paradox, and it makes those that are opposed to God, who will never seek him, when I will never look to him on my own, he will make it happen. And he has made it happen. So I've got a couple verses for you. If you like to take notes, great. If you just want to close your eyes and listen to these things, listen to the concept of the overwhelming nature of God's love. We're going to hit six attributes of God's love today. So if you like to count and hold me accountable, I think I got it right. I think it's six. Yeah, we're going to go through them, and we're going to see what they are. The first one here is that it is initiating and it is a love that pursues. God's love is an initiating love, and it's a pursuing love. So listen to this. It's just a fragment of the verses we could have used. 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, no. But that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for us. 1 John 4.19. We're just moving on. 1 John 4, by the way, is great. He got, got a lot of this. We love... Because he first loved us. You get the order? The order is important here. We love because he first loved us. John 3.16, we had it quoted for us this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved a fallen world. Romans 5.8. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. And this one doesn't have the word love in it, but you can feel the context. I thought, let's just go to the last book in the Bible. Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It is God's love in the first And primary attribute of his love, it is that it is an initiating love. It is a pursuing love. We struggle with this at times. In our lives, we start to get this backwards. Some of this will be speaking to the boys here, but we will speaking to all of us. I believe we get this when we come to faith. I believe at times it's easy for us to forget this. As we live out faith and we put our efforts into it and we work and we make more effort and we sometimes become wrong-minded. You know, there's a, uh, we just had a wedding yesterday, so I may have an example or two may come up with uh, weddings. I got wedding on the brain. Uh, It's kind of like a wrong-minded man who's got his fiancee and he's about to get married and he's sitting there and he's getting all ready. He's got his tux on maybe and he looks in the mirror and he's like, there's one lucky lady. I mean, I'm looking in the mirror, and she is a lucky lady. Fortunately, she didn't hear that, or the wedding would probably be off at that moment. And he's wrong-minded. Why? Because after we take the photos, if we took the photographs, any one of us could say to that man, if you just look at the photograph with the both of you there, we can assure you who is getting grace and who is giving favor or charity to whom. Put you two together together. She is clearly showing her favor to you. She's the more beautiful one. But we sometimes forget and we become wrong-minded. It is God, and because of his love, and because of his grace, not because we were beautiful, oh, because he loved us that he shows us his favor. And he's willing to come and to stand beside us and if you will, take a picture with us. And then we will be the bride of Christ. Not because we are so beautiful. Because he is so loving. Can we say amen to that? Amen. So God is loving to us. We're going to now continue. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. is where we're going to set our hearts and our minds this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, it will be page 944. We're not going to read the entire passage. We will use it because Paul has all the other attributes in this passage. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The second attribute of God's love is that it is saving and it is forgiving. For those of you that wanted some really nice acrostic or simple mnemonic that we could use all this, it's not going to happen. Couldn't come up with it. So we're going to have to do the harder work. You're going to have to either write it down or remember a bunch of different words. All right? We're going to work together, so you are going to have to deal with it. It is a saving love, a forgiving love. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a lot going on here. If we look at our lives, and if you want to read something that's... Interesting and, and exciting, but challenging as well, Romans 1 through 7. Because in Romans 8, we're basically getting Paul shifting gears and giving us a climax. He's moving us out. He's basically saying through the others, we've had the law, we've tried this, we've given everything that we can. And this law and the standard, I guess in theory we step back and we look at it from a distance. And go, yeah, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I, yeah, I mean, I can do that, I think. As we get closer and closer and closer and we understand God's law, we're like, oh, oh, I just keep failing and failing and failing. I can't make it. I'm not even close. My jealousy, my anger, my selfishness. Oh, I call it other things. I rarely call it that. Selfishness, my own pride, my vanity, my addiction. It's getting a little uglier. And it's getting a little harder. And Paul goes through all of this. Matter of fact, he gets personal in chapter 7. He goes, everything that I want to do, all those things that are in my mind, that are in my heart, I'm failing to do. And everything that I don't want to do, I'm ending up doing. The good things that I want to do, I can't get to and it's not happening enough. The ones that I just need to stay away from, that had me, they come up more often. Oh, wretched man that I am, deliver me from this body of sin. Basically, he's praying for heaven because in this life, it's not that easy. It's not an intellectual exercise. We make our commitments, and then Monday morning comes. We're like, I thought it was supposed to be easy now. But here's what he's saying. After all of that, with that as a preface for us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We couldn't help ourselves. We went into verse 2. Number number one, initiating, pursuing. Second attribute of God is saving and forgiving, no condemnation. And maybe as you read verse 2, the third attribute of God's love is that it is freeing. It is the first time ever in our lives that we're actually truly free. Before we expand on that, let's read it again. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What's going on here? There's multiple aspects to this freedom. We think that in our free will, because God created us free will, that we are choosing to sin. When we do something that is contrary to God's character and we're doing it willingly, there's that real sense of that. You know, we could not do it or do it. But when all the wind at your back is pushing you there, when every part of our human nature will go there, we may not do it momentarily or the next moment, but we've done it. We can't stop being perfect. We could never do it. So when we do it in a sense of we're doing something that we almost have no ability not to do. We don't really have a freedom from our own nature. So when God comes in and he saves our hearts, we have some freedom. We have it in multiple ways. One, have you ever had something that was on your heart and you knew you needed to get off your chest? And it was just weighing on you and you're like walking around like this. You're heavy and you're like, well, why the long face? Oh, gravity because you don't even know the stuff I'm carrying. And somehow, some way, whatever way you get it off your chest, you confess it, you share it. What's one of the feelings? Certain lightness. The burden that we carry with our sin is heavy. We have a freedom, a release that comes when we transfer the burden of our sin, which we can never fix, the debt that we owe, we can never pay, and we transfer it to the one who wants it. And here's a freedom that comes in the confession. There is a freedom that comes when we are not subject to the law anymore. How exhausting is it to keep being put up against the standard that you know you will continually fail, that I know that I will continually fail. There's no freedom in that. The Bible calls that slavery. We are a slave to sin. It uses the term slavery in that sense in that we have no ability to get out. And third... It is the first time that we have the opportunity, the ability to actually not sin. Because we have the power of the spirit of life. The power of the resurrected Christ within us. So when we say that we are free, and when it says here that God's love is freeing, it gives us the opportunity for a new life that we have never had. So God's love is freeing, and we're excited about that. God's love attribute, I like three words here. It's helping, it's assisting, and it's sanctifying. Because some people like different words, so I'm trying to appeal to every one of us here. Helping, God's love is a helping love. It's an assisting love. It is a sanctifying love. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now we could spend literally weeks and weeks and months in Romans chapter 8. We could start with just little verses like 11 first word if. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There's some sub-aspects to this, helping and assisting. The spirit of Jesus Christ is going to come and help us. It is going to assist us. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now get that. Jesus Christ himself as the God-man, his incarnation He came down, he put on flesh and all the aspects of the flesh. He physically goes to the cross. He dies a painful death. He is in the tomb, his body is dead. The spirit of Christ that is able to raise him from the dead is the same spirit that assists us and that helps us. And sometimes when I say these things out, I just try to get quiet and I just try to sit there and just see, you know, you know, just quit thinking, Stan. Let, let the Lord just give you visions and understandings of these things, right? I like see a head nodding, right? You, you know, you've been there. So we're sitting there, and we're letting God speak to us. And I had this, th- you know, I was just kind of picturing what's happening in Acts chapter 1 and the end of Luke and some things we've been studying in a personal Bible study. And I'm picturing these disciples that have been with Jesus for a number of years. They physically, basically, wherever he goes, they're with him. And so they kind of got the, you know, when you got the master with you, you know, you, you, it's, it's kind of good. You're like, yeah, you know, we're with him. Right, The whole time. And things are good and they have some strength in him. They're confused. They ask questions. But they have a certain strength with him. On the night of his betrayal, when they took Jesus away, and they were separated. You got Peter and you got the others. The disciples were kind of walking behind. They were at a distance. When their Lord was separated from them because he was in the body, being in one place at one time, when they had distance that separated them, how strong were they? Yeah, those of you that read scripture say not very. Yeah, not very, right? Peter, scared a cat, ran away. No, I don't even know the guy. I don't, I don't know anything about him. Ran away. And the, the picture I had was if somehow Jesus in shackles far away, getting beaten, and Peter over here saying, I don't know him, because Jesus is over there, I'm over here. If somehow Jesus could have walked over, physically walked over, put his arms around Peter, hugged him, held his hand, would Peter maybe have said, I do know him, and I'm with him? I think so. But he was separated. When Jesus said, it is good for me to go, it is good for me to go, because if I go, I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you my spirit, the spirit that's going to raise me up from the dead, so it is no longer, oh, he's in the other town, I wish he was here. Oh, he was here Saturday night, I was gone. It is now Jesus sending his spirit into the life. If if you are with me, you are my child. And my spirit, the same spirit, is with us always, now and forever, with us wherever we go. We have that power with us. Amen. That's called help. That's called assistance. That will sanctify us. And when that happened, by the way, have some fun, go home, read Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit came in power, they were told to stay in Jerusalem for a while. When the Spirit came and filled Peter, all of a sudden he looked at those same people, he stood up and said, I got a sermon for you. And he went at it full tilt. What changed? Jesus wasn't over there now. He was here. And the same power. So this is a miraculous power. This is a power that God gives, and it is something that will walk us through our life. Skip ahead, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The same idea, I'm not going to go over it again, but I wanted you to read it, that even the words themselves are there. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. So God does not save us out of his love and then kind of sit back, if you will, if you kind of, you know, it's hard to picture these things. They're way beyond. Our highest thoughts are an abomination, if you will, to what God really is. But let's say you picture him in throne of heaven and we are here and he's helping us. He is not helping us from a distance. The transcendent, holy other God moves in with us. He moves into our hearts, into our lives, to live with us forever. Why? Because he loves us. He is with us, and he moves in with us. Go backwards, verse 15. Could not go over these things. This holy other God, it's an intimate It's a tender, it's a closeness. It is a father and a son, father daughter. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When we come to Christ, when we are His own, there is no more fear of Him. And some might challenge the theology of that, and they would say, "Wait a minute." I thought the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I thought we were supposed to fear God and reverence him. We do, absolutely. The fear of God, the absolute fear of him is for those who don't know him. And if we do not know him, we had better, better be fearful. We had better not approach that mountain with unholy hands. Because that will be the last thing we do. But when we come to him, he says, I have not given you the spirit of fear. Second Timothy one seven, but of faith and of power and of a sound mind, the fear is replaced because he's approachable. He says it here: he's come to us, and he wants us to come to him. For For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. You are now brought in. I've adopted you as sons and daughters. Sons and daughters are not afraid. Oh, we respect and awe, we bow down before the awesomeness of God and the reverence for that. But we have no fear. Because we approach him as Abba, Father. I can't help it. I have to go to Mark. I think it's Mark 14, where Jesus is in the garden, where this passage comes from, where Paul. Is talking about this, yeah, Mark 14, 36. And Jesus is in the garden. This is where he's struggling. This is Jesus' struggle where it's too much, where he is overwhelmed, the humanity of what he's got to go through, the pain, the separation, the sin, the things that are unbearable to him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yet what you will. When he was praying, Abba, Father, He was basically saying, Daddy or Papa. That's the way we would understand it. It was not like, oh, Father, over there. It was, I am here. I am your son. I am your daughter. And I'm hurting. And I'm struggling. And I'm not sure I can do it. Please help me. And the Father that, if you will, figuratively speaking, puts us on his lap. And he says, I'm with you. I will be there. And what did he do? Did he take away the struggle? He did not hear. He said, I will be here. My strength will be with you. I will help you in your weakness. And I love you. Hang in there. It's a love. It's an intimate. It's a tight love. And when we struggle, and when we need help, God is not pleased if we're too embarrassed to ask He knows our weaknesses, and he wants us to come to him. Revelation 3.19 gives us a little different aspect of this help. Revelation 3.19 says it this way. Those whom I love, this is God speaking, right? By the way, we had Revelation 3. I don't know, was that you, Shane? Revelation 3, or was that Bobby? I forget which one had Revelation 3. Uh, For those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove, I correct, and I discipline. Uh-huh, yeah, we have to come to grips with it. God's love is so loving that he doesn't go, yeah, I really love you, but go ahead, cross the street, get it by that. Yeah, no, 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 it is, knock it off, you're not helping yourself. It would be easy for me to do the easy thing our par- uh, we do as parents sometimes. Yeah, I love them dearly, but I just don't have the energy for that. I can't fix that. I fixed it Wednesday, I fixed it Thursday, I dealt with it Friday, I need a day off. Mom and Dad need a day off. We need time off. You know what? If that's what you want to do, go do it. Anything ever sound like that, any parents, right? If that's who you want to be, then I'm done. Guess news. God is never done. God never takes off. He never loses energy. He will fix us every single time. And he will do it in wisdom. We do it where other psychologists go, yeah, that didn't help. <laughs> the way you did that, that actually probably hurt. God gets it right. And he never, ever, ever tires of disciplining us. So by the way, one of the worst places ever to be is if we're doing things wrong and we're not being disciplined by God, start at, you know, go. You know, don't pass go, don't go right back to the beginning. We are not saved. We are not his children. We're still one that he's pursuing us face but his children he disciplines so we say yeah i'm his child and he just he disciplines us we do need to know that and he's smart and it's omniscient i don't know a better word but one of the one of the most quoted verses of all time many of you won't even need to turn to it romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love god all things work together for good For those who are called according to his purpose. How is that possible? How can everything work together for good? First of all, there's conditions there. To those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Because us going to hell is not going to be the thing that is good for us. And if we're not called according to his purpose and we do not love him, it will not work out the way we might want. But if we love him and we say, Lord, you're you're the Lord of my life. I need your help. And things just came and blasted me from the side where I fell down, where I thought I had strength. I got myself in a situation that in hindsight I never should have been in. And God goes, well, I did not plan that for you. I didn't intend that for you. I didn't want you. I didn't ordain your sin. But guess what? I'm pretty good at this. And I will get you to where I need you to go. I will use the fallenness of man and I will work it for good in you ultimately and forever. So isn't it nice to know That God's love is helping and gets us through all these things. Beyond helping, the thing I need so often, is the fifth attribute is that it is hopeful. We're going to read just a little bit of a section here, the hope that his love has. Starting in verse 18. Some of your Bibles might have it titled as future glory or something similar. Paul, I think, felt that we needed to hear this. Because the struggle of life, you know, we get to a Friday night. These are my, like, Friday night verses sometimes. I just need to left alone a little bit. Maybe I need to read Romans 8, starting verse 18 for a bit. For I consider the sufferings of this present time. They are not worth even comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. Can can you kind of feel that sometimes? The earth, you know, even hear that, you you know, you know, Democrats, Republicans argue about these things all the time. You know, is the earth really groaning or is it okay? Well, I'll tell you here the Democrats are right. You know, it's the idea of groaning. I'm sorry for you, I'm not being the right crowd here to say that, but you know, it's groaning. The earth itself is groaning. Together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we ourselves, we humans, we have the first fruits of the spirit. We groan inwardly and sometimes outwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our actual bodies. For in this we hope, and in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. When we get to the end of our rope, when the physical pains of our body, the cancers that hit us, the emotional challenges, all the struggles of this life, when we're just trying to prick the rose, put the roses together and put the beautiful roses, and the thorn cuts us and we're bleeding... And we're like, oh, we groan inwardly. Where the cross we've been carrying is so long and so many years and so challenging. Lord, how many people of believers you say, Lord, take me home already? We work all week long to push the boulder up the hill. There's a good brother of mine here. We like to talk about this once in a while. We push the boulder up the hill. We got it up about three feet. We turn around for a split second, and it's down four feet. And you're like, oh, next week I'm starting a foot back, and I got to push it back up. You have patients that don't care, things that are not happening, misdiagnosis. I can't keep up. They keep changing the laws. People are hurting. There's pain. We're crying. A child dies. And the creation itself is longing. Our hearts are longing. Our bodies are longing for that future glory. And what is he telling to us here? It is coming. It will be there. We are not saved for this life only. We say amen. We're saved for eternity. And the best is yet to come. Isn't one of the worst moments of a vacation, you know, like when you realize the best is over? In that moment when you still have a lot of good stuff? You know, like what, some, for me sometimes it's that halfway point. I kind of got it right. It's 3.15 on a Tuesday afternoon. And at 3.16 I'm a little like, oh, you know, oh, you know we got to go home. Or you've done the, ba- the thing you've been looking forward to, the one thing you wanted to see. You can't wait. You've been waiting a year. You go do it. Like, what now? I got a good buddy in the audience that doesn't like climbing the mountain because when he gets there, he's like, "Ugh, that's where we are. So guess what God did for us? Forever, forever, and forever, for the rest of our life, for eternity, when we're a billion years in eternity, the best will be yet ahead. That's a loving God. That's a loving God who gives us a tremendous amount of hope. Concluding us with the sixth attribute. He's everlasting, and it's conquering. His love is everlasting, and it's conquering. We're going to kick this off. We're going to conclude it as Paul himself concludes it, starting in verse 31 through 39 as we conclude. If you study Paul out a lot, if you read some of his letters, he does these things where he's kind of writing. He's writing technically and he's always the technical level that God used him for the preciseness of words and concepts and thoughts. Scholars could spend the rest of their life trying to find issues, and you're like, he could not have wrote it better than that. Yeah, he could not have. But then sometimes as he's doing all that, he just kind of goes like this. It's like his pen gets big, and the momentum is increasing, and he just like, just it's just like he soars up with the eagles. Romans chapter eight, verse 31 to the end, is one of those moments where God in his spirit just lets Paul go. So listen to what he has to say about his eternal love, the everlasting nature of his love, the conquering nature of his love. What shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously Give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's flying. We have love times one, love times two, love times three. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He asks it. He's asking a rhetorical question. All right, so Paul's like, let's do this. Let's you wanna do this? Let's do this. Because if we don't do this, you're gonna go, Oh, I'm sure there's something. I just can't think of it right now. He goes, Well, I've been thinking about this. Let's go through it. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? How about tribulation? What was coming in seventy AD? What was coming? It's going to be Nero. Remember some of these things, some of the stories we read in history. Some tribulation is coming. Some big time tribulation. This is not God's protected church in the sense of Amen, the final protection. But on the day to day, shall persecution? How about distress. Are you distressed about anything ever? Some some serious stuff, or famine, true famine, not this kind of stuff. No clothes, nothing, no finances, nothing. I mean, no clothing. Which is interesting, he uses this one, because what did God always promise? You shall have food, you shall have shelter. So he's taking it to the nth degree. What if even God's promise was wrong? Or nakedness, or danger, or the sword, battle. Now, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved number two, who loved us. What's he pounding into us here? All these issues... He gives us the outer of it. It is his love. We are more than conquerors through his love. Not persecution, not this, not anything. He says, for I am sure. So now he takes it up a level. Have we covered everything? Is that anything else? Can you think of anything else that could separate us, that could hurt us, that could destroy us? He goes, I got a few more for you. And I am sure, I am confident that neither death, because although death has been conquered, Jesus conquered death. Most of us in this life will very likely die. Everyone that's come before us has died, except a very, very few that God has named. So in this life, we still have it. The final death has not been vanquished. But can death take it? What about life? Some people are like, oh, I'm I'm ready to go. What I'm scared about is living the next 40 years. If you knew me, I'm not good with giving me a week. I'll, I'll mess things up. Give me 40 years, I'm pretty nervous. He said, no, not death. Not life. Not death, not life. Nor angels. Nor rulers, kings, presidents, powers, monarchs, CEOs that don't like us. Nothing. Not things that are present. Not anything that is to come. Now we're getting broader. He's finishing in breath. Nor powers you start now i named personal powers but let's go things that are more powerful nature itself the way you look at it things that happen the demonic world the demons that exists powers nor height not you know, things that are up in the heavens or the stars not things that are in the earth if you will the core nothing in the depth and here's how he finishes nor in case I've missed anything, nor anything else in all creation, if there are hundreds of universes or thousands or millions or billions, nothing ever that I have created and anything that is I've created, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from love times three. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us. Friends, I hope it's clear. We do not boast or have confidence in our own abilities. That would be silly and beyond dangerous. We have confidence and we boast in the love of God in his abilities. What a fearful thing to say, I think I can make it. I think I can do this. How much better is it to say, I am confident that God has done it and will continue to do it and will take us home. So as we conclude, I want to make just a bit of a charge to our young men. Because we're blessed to have three teenage young men I just felt it was appropriate to read Second, 1 Timothy chapter 4. I believe it's Paul giving counsel to young Timothy, who was very young. He said it this way Young men, let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourselves to them so that all may see your progress. You know, God's love is overwhelming. It is with us. It has the attributes we talked about. I want to encourage you three, and I want to encourage each of us that we don't look at this as something to get to, to live out our testimony. Today we had words. We looked backwards, but we are also... Now looking for our lives and our words and our actions to come into context and come together. We don't wait for the someday when it's more convenient. Right now, we live in the present. The only day we will ever have is the day we live. So God wants us to live for him, to live as an example of all believers. Don't think I'll be an example when I'm 40 or when I'm 50 or when I'm 70. Right now, at 14, 15, 16, 17, this is the time you have the spirit of Christ. And for each of us, Let's not wait for a more convenient time. If the Holy Spirit is pursuing you right now, if he's initiating with you, let him have his way. Let him have his way. He will be loving beyond your comprehension. He will overwhelm us with his love that will get us, it will maintain us, and it gives us a future. Can I ask for us to bow together and pray? Father God, we are so thankful that you are still changing lives. We are so thankful, Lord, that your spirit is the same spirit and the same power that resurrected our Lord Jesus Christ from the grave. Lord, we're thankful that your spirit has preserved your word, that we can look into your word and we can see, we can understand, so we get rid of the silly ideas that we have, that we, the made-up constructs of God, that we, that we make it up ourselves, what is convenient or acceptable to us. We, Lord, we are thankful that you have allowed us a glimpse of you, the true you, who you really are, and we understand, Lord, that you are love. We ask, Lord, that you overwhelm us. Lord, we ask you to frustrate our will. To never give up on us. To hold on to us, Lord. When we are faithless, as your word says, that you are continue to be faithful. That we ask that you take everyone here. All those of us that can hear your words now. That you grab a hold of our hearts. That we confess that you are Lord. And that we take your power to live for you. In your name we pray.